Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Eller's Emission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy, given on Resurrection Sunday 2012, is entitled, Overcoming Sin. I remember when I first began to understand that the Bible taught victory over, not defeat in, sin. At that time, a friend cautioned me not to get too confident we are still sinners and we will fail. A resolve was birthed in me at that time to prove that God's Word, not our experience, is right, correct, and it is that living and abiding Word that enables us to overcome sin. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Overcoming sin. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, I just want you to test your soul really quick. Do you have any expectation that sin can be overcome? Or are you just happy that Jesus died and has at least forgiven your sin? It's an interesting question. Is your sin forgiven or is it overcome? And you could say, well, I hope it's both. Yeah, it should be. Some of you in here, though, have been dealt an interesting message throughout your Christian life or even your non-Christian life, and that is that Jesus came to forgive sins. It's true. But he came to do more than that, and that's what we're going to talk about in this message. He isn't just pacifying your enemy. It's not just that you were plundered by the enemy, and God's patting you on the back saying, you know, it's all right, and he gives you a big hug. I want you to realize that God dealt a fatal blow to your enemy so that you could be free from your enemy, so that you could be in alignment with the title of this message, which is Overcoming Sin. Now, where do I get this idea of overcoming sin from? Paul makes some declarations, and some of his most profound declarations are all packaged in one chapter of the Bible known as Romans 6. Romans 6, whenever you're about to go into a baptism, people whip out Romans 6. Well, that's a good, there's good reason for it. It is a, an enunciation in a very, very quick way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What the cross worked. And Paul says some things in Romans 6 that sound far too simple. Because if any of you have spent time in a Christian life, in a Christian church, attempting to live out what it says in Romans chapter 6, you probably would have found a little futility, a little frustration. So listen to what Paul has to say. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Hey, if you're dead to sin, then why would you live in it any longer? He's just sort of looking at you like, what's your problem? Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Huh, makes it sound so easy. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to this kicker at the end. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. So if we bake down Christianity into just that presentation right there, now you notice there's some dot, dot, dots. I'm not changing the meaning of anything. You can check me on this. Now, I've just simplified the statements that he made in Romans 6 specifically and directly towards the fact that sin is now past tense in your life. Now, by the way, for those of you that are familiar with different varying doctrines in Christianity, I'm not teaching Christian perfectionism today, which means once you come to Jesus, you no longer can sin. Oh, you can sin, all right. We prove that day in and day out. 
However, you have the equipment not to sin. Big difference between the two. The question is, are you going to use it? Are you going to implement it? You see, Paul is describing something here that to many of us is foreign. We don't understand it. And as a result, we just move on past Romans 6 and act like, well, you know, if we don't understand it, obviously God's not going to hold it against you. This is the purpose of the cross. What Jesus did for you is laying out right there in front of you. And it's extraordinary. It's actually called good news. And the word good is far too small to describe what this is. If any of you have tasted of this, you see, Ellerslie students get a crash course on this. We spend nine weeks focused on this life. In fact, overcoming sin, the entire construct of it is basic Christian discipleship. In other words, it's not just patting you on the back and saying, oh, you said the prayer? All right, well, that's all we have for you then, as if that's discipleship. Go your merry way and attempt to live a good life. Try and be moral, but we know you can't. That's not Christianity. Christianity is training you and tutoring your soul in the life of triumph in Jesus Christ. Okay, so this message is a study about a singular man in history known as Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of those obscure characters. You know, we know Saul and David as far as kings of Israel, and we know Solomon. Those are the good, classic, understood kings. And then some of us have heard rumors about Josiah, and then some of us know about Ahab. What do you do when you hear the name Ahab? Boo. But then when you say Hezekiah, it sounds like another book of the Bible, doesn't it? Uh, You know, let's look to the second chapter of Hezekiah. Well, there's not a book in the Bible called Hezekiah. However, there's story of Hezekiah in the Bible. In fact, it's all over the place. Isaiah and Nahum, both prophets, were in the time of Hezekiah. And both of them are writing something that pertains to what we're going to talk about today. And it's really interesting when you study the book of Isaiah, knowing that that was literally the prophetic counselor unto Hezekiah, the same way Samuel was unto Saul. It's very interesting when you know that. However, we're going to do a little crash course understanding. It's a very simplified uh, understanding of Hezekiah because there's a lot to say on Hezekiah, and I'm taking out some, oh, some really good pieces of Hezekiah's life, but you know we have to make a message here, and if I just tried to cover it all, we'd be here for five hours. First, I want to introduce you to the legendary power. Now, remember what the title of this message was. It was saying, Overcoming Sin. Sin, to many of us, is a power that is unable to be overcome, which is why many of us doubt the concept. Even the title, you look at it with incredulity. It's like, oh, he's one of those Christians that actually thinks you can overcome sin. Yeah, I am. But it's not my opinion on the matter. It's the biblical statement on the matter. And I will go toe-to-toe with anyone on that point. We do not make the gospel of Jesus Christ mushy to make it palatable to people's experience. The church of Jesus Christ today has not lived an overcoming, triumphant life. As a result, we have redefined doctrine to match our experience instead of to match the Word of God. And you could say, well, I don't know, Eric, what about Romans 7? Ah, I know where you're coming from. Romans 7. You know what follows Romans 6? Mm -hmm, That's right, Romans 7. Romans 6 and Romans 8 and half of Romans 7 are literally, you could say, two and a half of the most triumphant chapters in the entire Bible. And people will come in, hollow out, excavate out 
half of Romans 7, which is an argument that Paul is using towards the Jews to say, hey guys, we can't live this life. What we want to do, we want to live the righteousness of God, but we can't. There is nothing in us that is able to perform it. And then he says, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Context, context, context. So, when we start dealing with the power of Jesus Christ to overcome, it starts to become really good news. But let's get introduced to the legendary power. Most of us are very familiar with this legendary power. We just don't know it as the Assyrian army, okay? The legendary power, back in the days of Hezekiah, there was a legendary power in the world, and it was known as the Assyrians. The Assyrians got whatever they wanted. If they wanted your house, they got it. It's that simple. They start marching on your house, you throw up the white flag and say, take whatever you want. The Assyrians get what they want. Okay, now I'm going to draw a little parallel between the Assyrians and sin. Okay, because many Christians are living in the days of Hezekiah right now. And we are being trampled under by the Assyrians. Whatever the Assyrians want, they get. And we have every justification for it. So the legendary power, introducing the great king of Assyria. The kings of Assyria were men of war. Men who thirsted for power, control, glory, and wealth. The tradition amongst the kings of Assyria was to refer to themselves as the great king. Or in other words, the king of kings. I don't know about you, but those are fighting words where I come from. Who in the world does the king of, Syria, king of Assyria think he is to call himself the king over all other kings? Hey, he can't get away with that. But guess what? He was. And no one was standing up against him. Who should have stood up against him? This is the days of Israel and Judah, two separate kingdoms because they divided. So we have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Who started the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah? It's founded upon the word of God. The great king of kings rules those lands. And yet, when the great king came and mocked them and said, but I am the king of all kings, they cowered. Oh, how could they? Well, how could you? How could you cower before any other king? Don't let him lend him any credibility. He's a liar. The Assyrian kings built Assyria for battle, an entire nation that was built for battle. When you popped out of the womb, you were being groomed as a soldier, immediately. They were a warring nation, bloodthirsty. The entire culture was a culture of war and military stratagem. Everyone was trained for war and for military conquest, and thusly, Assyrians have been termed in history as the Romans of the East. In its age of glory, Assyria subdued the whole of northern Asia, while the lust for land, power, and plunder consumed the nation. Upon the backs of this bloodthirst and conquest, the capital city of the empire of the Assyrians was built in unprecedented luxury. This capital city, known as Nineveh, huh? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Does that ring any bells for you when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Three days in the belly of a whale? That's where Jonah went. This capital city known as Nineveh was so grand and sprawling that it was termed the exceeding great city of three days' journey. It was actually said that it would take three days to walk across Nineveh. Oh, that's a big city. Uh Uh-huh. This is one massive empire, ironically, that is no more today. I mean, it's literally just a pile of rubble today. It's completely decimated. This was the capital in the heart of where the kings dwelt that defied the living God. 
Hmm? You want to know your future if you defy the true king of kings and claim yourself to be above him? Uh-huh. You turn into a Nineveh. Yeah, you might have your season. might be very impressive. But this is the end. You see, Nahum, the prophet, calls Nineveh the bloody city, a city full of lies and robbery. The Assyrian royalty maintained an unparalleled luxury and comfort during their hundred years of uninterrupted power and dominion, plundering the wealth of 20 major nations, which, by the way, included Israel and Judah. The great king, Sargon, brought the Hittites to their knees and took their treasure. And following him, the great king, Esarhaddon, and Assurbanipal pillaged Egypt and her great cities, and they removed treasures of Sais, Memphis, and Thebes. Sennacherib, by the way, you're more than welcome to boo whenever you hear the name Sennacherib in this message. Sennacherib (laughs) overcame Chaldea and the treasures of Babylon were transferred to his coffers. And as you will see in this message, the great king of Assyria also plundered the kingdom of Israel of its historic wealth and sacred treasure. In other words, Assyria demonstrated absolute sway and unparalleled dominion in its age. During those 100 years of power, it was widely recognized that the great king gets whatever the great king wants. That was the legend. That's what it said. Well, think about the age we're in. Sin gets what sin wants. Even if you come to Jesus, sin still rules in your body? And most Christians would testify, sin gets what sin wants. And as a result you will become as the nation of Israel became in the age of Hezekiah. Now remember, I'm going to define it. When I say Israel here today, Israel is one part of the kingdom. It's divided in this story. We have the kingdom of Israel, and then we have the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah is run by Hezekiah. Okay, The kingdom of Israel would be like your brother in this. We're going to identify in this message with the kingdom of Judah in Hezekiah's story. Okay, The kingdom of Israel is separate. They're actually antagonistic towards Judah, even though they have the same history. I know it's sad. Welcome to the modern church. Introducing the rebel king of Judah. Okay, now let's get something straight. Everyone bows to the king of Assyria. Back in this day... The king of Assyria, Assyria would literally go around and he would just charge a tribute to people. It's like, okay, I can destroy you or you can pay me a whole bunch of money and we'll leave you alone. So guess what? They all paid him a lot of money. It was called a tribute. And then he could come back anytime he wanted and go, you know what? I want more money from you or I could destroy you. Which one do you want? So they give him more money. Ah, this is what you call the king, great king gets whatever the great king wants. He had such a legendary power backing him up. The Assyrian power held sway over all that world around him. I mean, it was massive power. In the midst of this, we have one man. I want you to recognize how profound this is. One man. The king of Judah, known as Hezekiah. It says, introducing the rebel king of Judah. I I like this. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. And by the way, there had been a lot of kings before Hezekiah came along. I didn't count how many there were, but there was a lot. Okay, and his forefathers had done some bad, bad things. 
And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Hezekiah is born. And Hezekiah has a heart like David's was. It was a heart that was after the things of God. It was soft towards the things of God. Where did this guy come from? And he did that, was right, that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. Now listen to this line. You'll notice I made it really big for you so you wouldn't miss it. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now you see, if you had typically just opened up to 2 Kings 18 verse 7, you wouldn't think anything of it. It's like, well, I'm sure that's good that he rebelled and didn't serve the king of Assyria. But you don't understand how significant that line is. Now I've given you a little preparatory lesson so that you will. But I want you to realize... No one defies the king of Assyria. No one! Who is this guy? I mean, this is the worst thing you could ever do, right here. In fact, most people, if we were going to give counsel, even as Christians, you don't want to make some declaration. You don't want to stand up and rebel against sin, okay? Because then your life gets worse. All the Christians around you are going to notice that you stood up and said, Yeah! And I have authority. And I have power in the blood of Jesus. And then you're going to fall and it's going to look really bad. You don't stand up against the king of Assyria. You don't rebel. Oh, no. Well, Does the Bible end up turning bad? You know, Hezekiah, do you think I'm going to tell you the story if it ends up in the tank? This has a good ending, okay? Same with the gospel. Let's introduce the players. First, the great king. Sennacherib. We'll liken him to the power of sin. You know, well, I mean, I'll, I'll get to it when I describe what his name means. Sennacherib. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a little off. Uh, you, you weren't expecting that one, I know. Well, I'll, I'll just say it. Well, I'll cover it in just a second, too. But it actually is the god Sin, is what he's named after. Sin has many brothers is his actual name. That's what Sennacherib means. Good job, guys. That was impressive. And so, isn't that amazing? So what he symbolizes is actually sort of what he's named after. Now, that's a god of Assyria named Sin. Isn't that a funny name for a god? Uh-huh, it is. Why in the world would we ever bow down to that god? Especially as Christians, that we would ever tremble before that god. Got to be kidding me. Number two, King Hezekiah. The remnant. This is what he would represent. The remnant, the sheep, the one who believes. Okay, so when I talk about Judah, the kingdom of Judah, it's symbolic. King Hezekiah represents them. Okay, his decisions are on behalf of a nation, which is known as the kingdom of Judah. The line of the kings, Jesus, came from the kingdom of Judah. He ruled on the throne, and he still does. The kingdom, he's the united kingdom of Israel and Judah. But King Hezekiah represents the remnant, the sheep, the one who believes. Three. You know, there was a pharaoh named So. That was, what, that was what his name was. So, the pharaoh of Egypt. Well, he represents the flesh in this story. The human solution, the right arm of the world. You see, the king of Assyria can't be stopped. And Hezekiah recognizes that I can't submit to the king of Assyria. That's not right. So what does he do? He turns to So, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, and says, maybe if I make an alliance with him, he could help me overcome 
Sennacherib. I want you to realize what I just described is what we do all the time. We go to sow, the pharaoh of Egypt, the flesh, the human solution, the right arm of the world for our solution. And then we have the kingdom of Israel. We can call this the brother or the goats. You know how you have the sheep and the goats? And God divides them out uh, in Matthew 25, 40? Well, kingdom of Israel in this story doesn't look too good. Okay, They're not doing very good at this time in history. In fact, they've so utterly gone apostate against the living God. And you'll see what happens to them. It isn't pretty. Number five, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of battle, Jehovah, God, Adonai, Elion, Jesus, the long forgotten solution. Uh, Hey guys, (laughs) I'm right here. You see, they turn to Pharaoh instead of to the Lord of battle? You've got to be kidding. What do we do? We turn to our own energies, our own gritted teeth, and say, I think I can overcome this. I think I can make something righteous out of my life. I think I can do it. Mm -mm, You can't. The anatomy of bondage. We call it this, reading a series of press clippings. If you spend your day meditating on the power of your enemy, if you spend your life pondering that which it has accomplished in your past. Think about it. Just a quick review of your past, and guess what? You start reading the press clippings of that which has torn you down throughout your life, and it seems awfully powerful. Everyone around you is telling you how powerful the Assyrian army is, and that there's no escape. This is just the way it is. Let's accept our bondage. When you read the press clippings of the enemy, you accept your bondage, and you no longer will fight it. The amazing thing about Hezekiah is he grew up. I mean, literally, he was born in the midst of this legendary power. He was raised. He didn't take the kingdom until he was age 25. And guess what? His, his father was a disaster. He was totally trembled before the Assyrians. Where did this guy come from? At the age of 25, he takes the throne and he says, there's one thing I know, and that is we will not serve Assyria. No one says that. No one in their right mind would ever come up with that conclusion. It's the same thing they'd say in Christianity today. We live in an entire generation overcome by sin. Even in the church, our highest leaders have proven it in the public square that even they are addicted. Even they are under the thumb of the control of it. What do we do? We're the Hezekiah generation. The little tribe of Judah known as the remnant that says, we will not submit. The hundred gold coins of faith. Let's imagine that you had a hundred gold coins of faith. Every single one of you has entrusted it when you're born. Boom. If you just have a little bag. You know how they used to carry their treasure, tre- treasure around in little bags? When someone's paying someone, they throw like a little bag of coins. You have a little bag of coins. It's like pulled tight. And you carry it around, stick it in your pocket. And if someone ever says, how many coins do you have? You pull it out and you count them. You have a hundred. Hundred gold coins. We call it faith. It's your confidence. It's your strength. It's where you look in your soul. When we talk about faith in the Christian understanding, it's what your gaze is upon, where your confidence and where your assurance lies. Where are you putting your hundred gold coins? Because you all have faith in something. For most of us, our confidence, and get this, our faith is in the power of sin. And we say, if I'm a betting man, I'm going to stick all my coins on Assyria. 
Assyria just rules, okay? And so where's our confidence? Where's our faith? It's in Assyria. Assyria has always controlled us. I've grown up a slave. I've grown up and my father's always paid tribute to the great king. Hey, what am I expecting? To to buck the system? I mean, that's the way it's always been. Where are your coins? You know what some of us do? We take five coins out of our hundred and put it on Jesus. Hey, but we're smart. You know, we know that we want to maintain, you know, as much position as we can. So we say, I think Jesus in the end can get me to heaven. But in the meanwhile, I have 95% confidence that I'm going to live in sin today. And as a result, guess what? You do. You live in sin. You want to know the secret to Christianity? You take out your pile of 100 coins and you dump it on Jesus. All in! I'm all in on the Lord of hosts. Yeah, but that's, that's a little difficult to do when you live in a generation that is taking out one or two coins and sticking it on Jesus and saying, no, we're supposed to hold on to 95 to 98% of our confidences in sin. What are we doing? What's happened to us as the church? Where are you investing your confidences? We were born in a day of compromise. So was Hezekiah. I mean, we could say, well, but woe is me. I mean, I've never seen, it, seen an example of it. Well, Hezekiah didn't have an example of it either. He had to go all the way back multiple generations to King David, you know, to Josiah. You know, his, what he had was weak in his history. He's had glimmers of it, but guess what? Even the word of God in his day was varnished and overcome with barnacles. How do you get back to the truth? And so we can complain about the fact that we don't have it easy. We didn't see it. Our parents didn't model it for us. We haven't been taught it. Oh, what do we think Hezekiah should do? Stick his head in the sand and say, I, I had a, a bad father. He's considered one of the evil kings. And stick his head in the sand? No, he rises up in his generation. He says, and we will not submit to the Assyrians. He's the rebel in his generation. Some of you have always wanted to be a rebel. You've just been going about it the wrong way. You don't rebel against God and your rightful authority in this world. You rebel against the power of sin. Hey, so enjoy your rebellion. But rebel against the right thing. Rebel against the powers of darkness. Snub your nose at it. You do not submit to the enemy. So this is the resolve of the remnants. In the midst of a compromised generation. Growing up in the modern church. Now listen to this. This is the classic picture of what we've grown up around. Our neighbor, our goat neighbor, our brother neighbor, the kingdom of Israel has completely spurned the living God, completely thrown out the word of God, and yet they still have the entrapments of calling themselves Israel. We could look at Israel and go, you're not even close to what Israel is supposed to be. Yeah, that's the same thing we could say about the church. You're not even close to what the word of God describes the church, and yet they bear the name the church. This is the same thing that's happening in Hezekiah's day. Now, it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, this is... This is before Sennacherib. (laughs) He came up against Samaria, which would have been the capital of the kingdom of Israel. You know, we have Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom of Judah. Samaria would have been the capital of the kingdom of Israel at the time. So Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it, laid siege to it. And at the end of three years, they took it. It was a three-year-long siege. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria. Israel was literally done with at this point in time. Officially, 
concluded. Israel has been taken captive by the Assyrians. It's official. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. All gone. All done. It's over. Israel compromised. They went against the Deuteronomic code laid out by Moses. And he said, if you go this way, you'll find blessing. If you go this way, you'll find cursing. You'll find disease. You'll find impoverishment. And ultimately, you'll find captivity. And God says, it's done. I've given them and I've extended patience and mercy to them. And the time has come for judgment. And Israel went into captivity to the Assyrians, a legendary power. You could almost say it seems like God helped build this legendary power to bring judgment on his own. Beholding the power of sin, trembling before its reputation, awe-inspired by its sway. Could you imagine growing up in a generation where literally the church around you has been taken wholly captive by the power of the Assyrians? I mean, they're completely captive. This is Hezekiah's generation. And in this same generation, this is four years into his kingdom, he literally has the audacity to say, and I will not bow my knee. He just took all of Israel captive. Israel has always been protected by God. Always. Even in their rebellion, they were protected. But in Hezekiah's generation, they were wholly taken away. And Hezekiah's knees, though buckling, says, and I will not let that happen to Judah. Isn't that an amazing time to be alive? Well, I know it might seem like a stretch to some of you, but I will propose that that is precisely the day in which we live. God is looking to see if there's a remnant. So I'll tell you what. Most people get upset when I talk about the church being weak. It's like, that is just rude to say to the church that it's weak. It just is. And it's ridiculous to argue the fact. It's like trying to claim that Israel is healthy. Israel is not in obedience with the word of God. It's not healthy. Judgment comes when that is the case. How dare we bear the name of Jesus and live contrary to the word of God? Where's the fear of God in our generation? The modern church war council. Okay, so the modern church gets together over with your soul. So you're going to battle in your soul. You have the Assyrians coming against you. And the power of sin has always reigned in those around you. And so there's a war council, but it comes from the modern church. And so all the great leaders of the church get together and they tutor your soul. You pick up their books and you read them, you listen to their sermons, and they instruct you. And this is somehow what we get. I'm not saying that this is what everyone says. I'm saying that for whatever reason, we've gotten this message. Where's it coming from? It's hard to describe. There isn't a man alive today that isn't under the thumb of lust and sexual addiction. This is the modern church council. You're going to war against the Assyrians. Well, uh, there isn't a man alive today that isn't under the thumb of lust and sexual addiction. Uh, anxiety is completely normal. It's an acceptable dimension of life that we all just accept. Life is chaos. Just get used to it. Fear is human. Everyone in a time of crisis would do the same. Don't feel bad about it. Women gossip. It's just the way it is. Everyone is addicted to something. I mean, what's life without some form of, some of self-comforting addiction? Huh. Good points. You know when lust and sexual perversion come against your soul as a man? 
If you know and you've been told all growing up that it's just normal to give in, every other guy does. Seems like every other Christian male leader does too. Who are we to defy it in this generation? Who are we as young men to rise up like a Hezekiah and rebel against it and say, but we will not bow? I mean, come on. Let's get real, says the modern church council. So let's go back in time because some of us recognize those statements. Now let's go back in time to ancient Judean war council. What do you think Hezekiah is hearing? What do you think's going on around him? What do you think his war council would be telling him? There isn't a nation alive today that isn't under the thumb of the great king. Paying tribute to the great king, Hezekiah, is completely normal. It's an acceptable dimension of life that we all just accept. The Assyrians rule. Just get used to it. Fearing the great king is human. Everyone when faced with the power of the Assyrians would do the same. Don't feel bad about it. Nations cower before the great king. That's just the way it is. And what did Hezekiah say in his generation? Not for me. Hmm. I like this guy. You know, it's amazing to think. All scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired of God. And it is useful for training. It's, it's just extraordinary for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness, for correction. That we would be fully equipped for every good work. What does the story of Hezekiah have to do with training us in doctrine? It's just a nice story in the past. It is the gospel. It is the soul of a man in the midst of compromise around him, rising up and rebelling against the great legendary power of his day and saying, I will not submit. However, here's what's interesting. The reason I started by sharing with you the final statements about Hezekiah, which is that he was considered a great king and what he did was right in the sight of God. And there had been no king before him or after him like him. The reason I started with that is for you to understand we're a lot like Hezekiah. Some of us, we have our wobbly knees in this generation. In fact, it's one of the things that bonds us together here at Ellerslie. We don't know how to fight the Assyrians. We don't know how to go to war against the Assyrians and win. We're just a small little tribe here. We don't understand it. But we know we can't bend our knee to it. And so therefore, though we don't have the equipment to overcome sin... We're willing to do whatever it takes to see sin overcome in our life. We're ready to go to the mat and wrestle. We just don't know how to. And so most of us, and by the way, brace yourselves for this one. Like Hezekiah, do it wrong first. Isn't that interesting? I just said that Hezekiah did it wrong first. Now he did it right in not bending his knee and rebelling against uh, the Assyrians. And he said, I will not submit. But, but guess what? He did it wrong first. Remember that character named So, the pharaoh of Egypt? Mm -hmm. Remember uh, the character known as the old man in your life? It's called the flesh. It's your self-effort, your own ability to tackle the Assyrians. By the way, I want to give you a little war counsel right now. You are nothing. You are ill-equipped to stand against the Assyrian army. You do not have what it takes. And you're like, how offensive. That you would tell me that. No, I'm trying to help you. It's like, well, how's that supposed to help me? But you do have a power. But it is not yours. But it is available to you. And if you call upon it, it will work on your behalf. 
However, if you don't know the secret of the gospel, if you don't understand how this works, you may know that you're not supposed to bend your knee to Sennacherib. Nice, that's good. You may know that you can't bend your knee, but you don't know how to win the battle. This is the war council of Judea. I might as well finish it. Everyone is subservient to the Assyrians. I mean, what's life without paying tribute to the great king daily? I mean, come on. We pay tribute to the great king daily. How many Christians have you heard talk like that? Yep, yep, that's just what we do. Burp, scratch. Dealing with your own personal experience of defeat. You see, as I give this message about overcoming sin, the first thing that will come into your mind is, well, I've tried. Okay, I've tried taking on uh, the Assyrians. <laughs> it doesn't work. Well, I'm right there with you. You trying to take on the Assyrians will not work. King Hezekiah trying to pacify the Assyrians, trying to negotiate behind closed doors with, with So, the Pharaoh of Egypt, eh, it doesn't work. Listen to this story of Hezekiah. It will give you great comfort to know that this great king that God lauds and applauds Started out like this. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Uh Uh-oh, it's not looking good. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you will impose on me, I will pay. You see, the king, well, King Hezekiah, had an agreement with so Pharaoh of Egypt. And that is that so Pharaoh of Egypt would supply that which is necessary to pay the tribute. However, as you will find in your own flesh, so will not come through. And so, King Hezekiah is in an awkward place. And if he doesn't pay tribute, he's going to be utterly destroyed. So what does he do? And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So he had them backed up. And guess what King Hezekiah did? He says, here, you pay me this, otherwise you're dead. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Could you imagine if I finished the story there? It's like, overcoming sin. Yeah, right. Look at Hezekiah. Isn't this interesting? That's part of the story. It's like, what are you doing? You guys were like, he's my hero. I don't know what to think of him now. Well, this is you. This is me. You know what? We've been stripped clean of all that we have. You know what? Hezekiah has never been more vulnerable than he is now. Did he really save Jerusalem in this story? Did he save the capital city? Because that's what is under siege right now. Did he save Jerusalem? No, he stripped it clean and only made it weaker. Because guess what happens? Next year when the kings go forth unto battle, the king of Assyria will come unto Jerusalem and say, all right, give me the same amount you gave me last year, plus, uh, let's say, a 25% increase. What does Hezekiah have? Nothing. He's already given it all away. He has nothing. What do you do? Turning to so. Let's see what the flesh can do for us. 
So, that's actually the name of a guy, okay, even though it looks like the, just the word so. It is the word so, but it's a name. And it's capitalized, but it's at the beginning of a sentence, so it's confusing. <laughs> so, the Pharaoh of Egypt doesn't pay up. He doesn't deliver in the time of need. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's not truly your friend. See, most of us just don't know that. See, so, the Egyptians have been the arch enemies of the kingdom of Israel and Judah all these years. But you're going to turn to that which has harmed you in the past because in the moment it seems at least better than being subservient to the Assyrians. Don't do that. We do it all the time. We may not do the gross sin, but we will go to something else other than God to try and find strength for the battle. But so, listen to these lines, but so, it's talking to the Pharaoh of Egypt, but so you said that you would fight for me. You know what so says? So? (laughs) But so you promised that you would never leave me nor forsake me. What does so say? So? But so you assured me that you would supply the necessary tribute. So? That's the flesh right there. It will not pull you through. In the time of battle, it will pull a Saul. You know, Saul was head and shoulders above all of Israel. Goliath stands in the valley of Elah, challenging and defying the armies of the living God. Who should have stood up against Goliath? Saul should have. What did Saul do? He pulled a sow. Shrugs his shoulders. He's terrified with fear. The flesh is unable. Saul is a great picture of the flesh, as we study at Ellerslie. Saul is unable to fight the Goliath. In comes a little diddly squat short eighth son of Jesse to take him on. You see, the Lord of hosts is in the camp. The question is, are we going to allow him to fight for us? This is Romans 7. This is actually one of the, uh, the key spots that the modern church will cling to to try and justify their mediocrity. For I, Paul, know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will, or to the desire, is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. How to overcome the Assyrians, I don't have. The desire to overcome the Assyrians, I have. But the power to overcome the Assyrians, I don't. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will save me from the besieging forces of Assyria? Who? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christian history, I think it was St. John of the Cross, enunciated this concept called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is the time in your soul when you recognize that you have no resources, that you have nothing to bring to God. You are completely vulnerable and empty. In fact, you're starting to feel the heat of hell and the fires of hell upon your backside. Your life isn't healthy. All your good efforts have failed. And you have nothing. You are at a dark night. It's amazing. At Ellerslie, the first two or three weeks of Ellerslie are what you would call the dark night of the soul. We don't try and make it a dark night, but I tell you what, it's uncanny how it works. Students come in here, and then suddenly they feel, they realize how unable they are to fight the Assyrian army. That's the first thing they're acquainted with. Assyria is so powerful. 
Assyria has always controlled me. I don't want to serve it, but I don't have anything in me. You lose all confidence in yourself. You can't fight the Assyrian army. What happened to Hezekiah? He's brought low. His brother, the kingdom of Israel, has been swallowed up into captivity. He's the lone guy out there. So has betrayed him. He has nothing. It's the dark night of Hezekiah's soul. And he's in the healthiest place he ever could be. God had to bring him to the dark night. Now, here's the interesting thing. Assyria doesn't want you to find the Lord of hosts. He doesn't want you to turn to the Lord of battle. However, Assyria can't help but end up turning you to the Lord of battle. You see, Assyria specializes, not purposely. They don't realize what they're doing. They're just built for conquest. They're bloodthirsty. But they don't realize Assyria brings Hezekiah to his knees. Hezekiah has only one option. God, I don't know if you fight anymore, but I sure need you to start fighting again in Judah. And how about us as Christians? I don't know if it's possible that Assyria could ever be defeated because I don't know any Christian around me that actually lives with triumph. But God, please, fight again in this generation in and through me. Make a name for yourself here. The dark night is literally right before the hours of morning light. The agony of the dark night, knowing what you ought to do, but not having the power with which to do it. I know I shouldn't submit to the Assyrians, but I have no clue how to fight them. I know, God, that I shouldn't give up Judah to them, but I have no resources to hold back their incoming forces. And he, King Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. We all know that that sounds like a good thing. But what if you don't have the powers to resist him? You know what? King Hezekiah is going to have a worse end, isn't he? Poor, poor King Hezekiah. See, this is where it starts. And now look at this next line. This is the line that King Hezekiah passed on to prophet Isaiah saying, Isaiah, give me counsel. Thus says Hezekiah. So this is the message delivered to the prophet Isaiah. This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. We've done everything we need to, but we don't have the strength to push. Prophet Isaiah, please give me some insight. I don't know how to fight the Assyrians. I don't want to bend to them, but I don't know how to fight them. Does this sound familiar with any of your souls? You don't want to bend to the power of sin. And reading the Bible, we all know we're not supposed to. Be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. I don't know how. I don't know how to do this, God. I want to serve you. I just have no strength in it of myself. You know what that's called? The dark night of the soul. So let's go back in time to where the term the dark night came from. Jacob is standing by himself in the night, knowing that tomorrow morning he must face Esau with 400 armed men. Esau has 400 armed men, and guess what Jacob has? No weapons. He has a whole bunch of women and children and some cattle. Everything he knows and loves is going to be destroyed tomorrow. He has sought his entire life for strength 
and for blessing, same way Hezekiah has. He has a heart for God. He grabbed the heel of, of Esau, even coming out of the womb, saying, if I could just be the firstborn. And then he tricks Esau with a bowl of red stew, playing upon his hunger to get the birthright. And guess what? Jacob still isn't satisfied. He still doesn't have what he needs. He's trying to grab the flesh. He's going to sow Pharaoh of Egypt for it. And then he even tricks for the blessing of Isaac. And guess who's still miserable? Yeah, our Jacob. And here we are at the place called Peniel. And he encounters a man, which is God. And he grabs a hold of God. And he says, I'm in a dark night. It's not a quote of Jacob. I I cannot let go of you until I get whatever you have. You're the only place I know to turn. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Quote, unquote, Jacob. You know what day this was? This is the early morning hours of Passover day. Isn't that amazing? What do you think this is all tying back to? Do you remember what today is? Mm -hmm. That's right. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Sennacherib. (laughs) Which actually means sin, or sin has many brothers. Isn't that hilarious? Sin has many brothers. Or it also could mean a bramble of destruction. It's hard because there's not a lot of Assyrian scholars out there to help us decipher what these names mean. But there was a god amongst the Assyrians known as Sin. It was like a moon god or something. And it's also a bramble of destruction. Well, this is in his private journals that they dug up. I don't know how many years ago, but they, they found Sennacherib's private journals. And in it, he claims to have conquered 46 strongholds of Hezekiah's territory. Okay? He's bragging in his journal. I've conquered 46 strongholds within Judah. Guess what's left? The 47th. What do you think the 47th is? It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on the rocks. 46 have gone down. This is a quote from King Sennacherib's kingly journal right around 714 BC. Isn't this amazing? We have a peek into his journal. And he says, I have King Hezekiah penned into his royal city Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Isn't that amazing? This is the bragging of sin. I have him right where I want him. Well, don't you think Satan thought he had Jesus right where he wanted him to? Mm -hmm. Nisan 14, AD 33. I know we could argue what date, actually, what year he actually died. But somewhere around there, he was 33 years old. And guess what Satan could have said? I have this king of the Jews penned into a royal city, Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage. I have him right where I want him. Oh, do you? Are you sure it isn't that God baited you here? to surround the city of Jerusalem? And do you know that if the Lord of battles comes to battle today, that you're not doing so hot? And what would the king of Assyria say? He's actually overplaying his strength. He believes his own legends. He believes that there is nothing that can stop him. The great deceiver has deceived himself. But if they had known what was going to happen when they crucified the king of glory, they wouldn't have crucified him. And if Sennacherib would have known what was going to happen to him and his mighty forces when he marched against Jerusalem, he would have never marched against Jerusalem. The dark night, 
Listen to the subtitle. The time of the 47th stronghold. Everything in your life has fallen apart. Is there anything left? All you have is a little wheeze that can come out of your soul. You're weak. You have nothing to fight the Assyrians. They've defeated you. They've shown their power over you. And what has God done? He's brought you to your knees. He gives you a little query. So can you do it? No. Do you have any gold to pay him tribute, to pay him off? No. How about so? Could you call on so? How about the flesh? You know, the old man has served you well in the past, hasn't he? No. He's a traitor. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's not my friend. Hmm. Well, it seems like you're in a tough place. And then imagine King Hezekiah saying, Do you still fight? Do you still fight as in the ancient days? Do you still do it? Imagine watching the king's face. I do. Ask me. Ask me to fight for you. Oh, what a moment. Then the king of Assyria sent the tartan, the field marshal, the general, the commander of the Assyrian army. That's mine. Anything in parentheses is what I put in to help you understand what the tartan is. The Rabsaris, the chief eunuch, high-ranking official in the Assyrian Empire, and the Rabshakeh, the chief, the chief cupbearer, the chief of the officers from Lachish. Lachish is one of the actual strongholds that was taken, and they're, they're, they're set up camp there. And so they're coming from Lachish with an emissary to declare the wishes of the great king. And they came with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. The pressing of Assyria. I'm going to call this the o- an opening and the opening of the window of opportunity. When Assyria presses against you, in your life becomes nothing but a heap of ash. You're suddenly in a moment. There's a window in your life where you are willing to call out to God unlike you've ever been willing before. Some of you have been hardened against Jesus Christ your entire life, but guess what? The Assyrians have backed you up into a corner. Sin has literally mauled your life, taken down 46 strongholds. All the gold has been stripped out of your life. You have nothing. So has betrayed you. You have nothing. And guess what? We call this the window of opportunity. You see, the Assyrians have overplayed their hand. And now you, unlike any other time in your life, are prepared to call out to the Lord of hosts. Never would you have even considered it before, but now you will. You will call on Jesus right now. Because if Jesus can help me, I need help. It's the, and the opening of the window of opportunity. Listen to uh, the, king, the great king boast. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hands of the king of Assyria? This is what he's asking Jerusalem. He's mocking them. He's saying, no one has been able to stand against me. Name one nation that has stood against me. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharaim and Hena and Iva? I had a great aunt named Iva, so it's always sort of strange when I see that. Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. Give it up. There is no hope for you, says the great king of Assyria. Wait till you see what his end is. The ancient feudal gods of wood and stone, they could not stop the armies of Sennacherib, the great king. So what's Sennacherib? What the great king, 
is declaring is that no gods of any nations have been able to stand against him. None. Name one God. And what he's saying is, what is the difference of your God? Oh, wait till you see, buddy. Wait till you see. But you know what? What the Assyrians have done is that it's exposed the weakness of all the other gods. You know that so and the weakness of the flesh was not exposed? The Pharaoh of Egypt is what I mean. The flesh was not exposed except for by Assyria. You know that that's how you actually found out that the flesh was weak? You know that all these other things that you've turned to to find satisfaction and comfort and strength have now been exposed by who? The king of Assyria. You see, the king of Assyria trying to destroy you is actually opening up a window of understanding in the fact that that can't save me, that can't save me, that can't save me, that can't save me, that can't save me. What is he actually saying here? There is no other God that can save you. And he's saying, so bend your knee. But look at this. They could not stop the armies of Sennacherib, the great king. Sennacherib. So the God of Hamath, the God of Arpad, the God of Sepharvaim, the God of Hannah, and the God of Iva. Anti-Iva is what I called her. The modern futile gods of wood and stone. So let's, let's modernize this. There are modern gods of wood and stone that you know that the powers of Assyria are exposing in your life. Things that you have trusted in. But in the dark night, they're all being exposed. Nothing can save you. Let's look at them. Now, you have to realize I made these up. The God of Hamath, these things aren't very easy to study in history. Okay, no one is like, well, I don't know who that is in history. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put up five modern gods and associate them with them. The God of Hamath, materialism, things. If I just have this stuff, then I will find comfort and satisfaction. People will esteem me because they will know that I'm prosperous. It does not save you. It does not satisfy you. Any of you that have tried it know this. The God of Arpad, knowledge, learning, and accomplishment. If I could just know these things, if I could have an education, I could have a whole bunch of alphabet soup after my name. If I could accomplish great things, then, then I would be something. I would be strong and the Assyrians wouldn't rule me. No, it doesn't work that way. The God of Arpad will fail you. The God of Sepharvaim comforts pleasures of the flesh. If you give sway to the delights of your soul, whatever your heart is yearning for, whatever you feel for, go after it. Uh Uh-huh. And it will fail you. The God of Henna, fame, popularity, and power. Some of us have just thought, you know, if I could just be popular and known, a movie star, a famous athlete, then I would be satisfied in my soul. No, you won't. The God of Iva, anti-Iva. Poor anti-Iva. Her God, by the way, was Jehovah. Okay? So I shouldn't say it that way. The God of Iva. Human goodness, humanitarian labor. If I'm just good, if I can behave morally, then God, I'm sure, will understand. Oh, will he? You know what? You could be the most moral person on planet Earth and go to hell. I know that sounds like a shocker, doesn't it? It's not morality that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. It is not Hezekiah's desire not to submit to the Assyrians that will save him. It's the Lord of battle that saves King Hezekiah. He's saved by the power of God, not by his own desire not to submit. The great king even exposes the fraudulence of so. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, so this is the emissary of uh, the great king, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. In whom do you trust 
that you rebel against me. Listen to this. This is the power of sin actually exposing the weakness of Saul, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. I want you to realize the power. I wish there were certain things I wished I could have gone into. But to realize what the king of Egypt will do to you. He will pierce your hand. What Jesus did when he became sin, when he was accursed, is he literally took the punishment of what the flesh does. He literally became sin. He was the end result. Its wages is death. And he absorbed every bit of it. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, will pierce your hand. Isn't that amazing? The pack and the pact. Okay, we have some characters. The mean wolf pack. Okay, that's like the Assyrian army. They're over here. And they're like, burying their teeth, and they can't wait to devour the sheep. Okay, sheep against wolves. It's not even fair. Okay? Even one wolf against a million sheep, the wolf wins, okay? But guess who's the sheep in this picture? Ah, that's King Hezekiah. He doesn't have the natural strength and the wherewithal to handle the wolf pack. So what does he do? He enters into a pact with the bears. Now, most of us, if we were wise, would tell King Hezekiah, you know what? Bears sort of have a reputation, too, for eating sheep. Yeah, I know, but they're a little more cuddly than those evil, mean wolves over there. So you turn to something a little more cuddly, but just as devious. Don't invite the bears into your sheep pen in a way of trying to go against the wolf pack. As the wolves are eating your front left hoof, the bears are eating your right back hoof. Okay, it doesn't work. Because there's another character that's missing, and he's known as the shepherd. If you turn away from the shepherd, guess what? The sheep are vulnerable. And if you have never come to the shepherd, you're vulnerable. You want to know why your left, or I'm sorry, your left front hoof and your right back hoof are both being munched down right now? It's because you haven't turned to the shepherd. You turn to the shepherd, guess what happens to the wolves, and guess what happens to the bears? Mm-hmm. A rod comes out and goes whack. And they're like, ee, 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 and they go running off. That's right. You stand in the shadow of your shepherd right by his ankle. Hang out there. And guess what? There is nothing that can come against you. You can say, but what, what about the legendary power of the wolf pack? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can't stand against the shepherd. Don't you know your shepherd? Have you never met your shepherd known as King Jesus? The siege on the 47th. Huh? The time has come. It's a dark night. The great king of Assyria has marshaled a great army and he stands outside the gates. Is all done? Is all over? Remember what happened to Israel? It was carried away into captivity. Are you next? Israel didn't trust its God. What are you going to do now? 2 Kings 18, here's the big boast. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. And spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. See, the king of Assyria is boasting. 
He's saying, don't listen to all of this. You're dead. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. Leave Hezekiah, remnant. Come out and I'll treat you well. But if you stay in there, you die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? It's a good question. If we grew up in a, in a generation where we have not seen victory, we've never seen the Assyrians hit in the teeth. We've never seen them fear. Why are we going to be the first ones? Let someone else go before. Show me what it looks like. You're the generation of David's. You're the generation of Hezekiah's. You're the generation that rises up and says, I'll, I'm willing to be the one to show this generation what it means to trust in the shepherd. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent to the prophet, to Isaiah the prophet, and said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. So now you know the context of where we're at. And Isaiah said to them, this is Isaiah's response, Thus you shall say to your master, which is Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. 2 Kings 19 says, So King Sennacherib again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you shall trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. What a moment. He spreads the message from the king of Assyria before the Lord in the house of the Lord. Sort of like, God, you see this. You see this blasphemy. What are you going to do? You see, the dark night has led him to God. The dark night has led him to the true solution. Where is the dark night leading you? Are you going to the house of the Lord known as Jesus Christ? Are you coming in before him saying, there's a boast of sin in my life. What are you going to do about it? You know what Jesus would say? Look at what I've already done. Fact, faith, and experience. Remembering the work of the truly great king. If any of you have been around, you've heard fact, faith, and experience whipped out of my holster a few times. Three characters. Fact... Faith, and then behind him, experience. They're all supposed to walk the razor-sharp ridgepole of the barn. It's impossible. Who can walk a razor-sharp ridgepole? Well, surprisingly, fact can. Fact gets up there and starts walking. How can he do that? Well, he's the word of God. He's without error. He's without fault. He's perfection. He's the way it is in actuality. And then behind him, you have faith. And as long as faith keeps its eyes focused on that which is true, that which is able that which God is, that's what God has done. It is able to walk the ritual, the impossible life. I'm not telling you the truth. That's how it works. But it's not that easy because there's a third character. And his name is Experience. And Experience is a loudmouth. And he's always clawing to try and get a grip of your shirt, Faith's shirt. 
You see, it's saying, hey, what about Aunt Martha? In this case, it's what about the great king of Assyria? Remember all the nations? What happened to the god of uh, Arpad (laughs) and Iva? What happened to them? That's what experience is doing. It's saying give up before it gets worse. Give up, surrender. You can't fight against this. What does fact say? That's my question to you right now. What has been accomplished? You have two choices. You know what's behind you? The legend of the Assyrians. The legend of sin. What's in front of you? The legend of Jesus Christ. The legendary work. He has done it. The word of God declares it. He has been victorious over the Assyrians. What did King Hezekiah look to in that day? Did he look to the legendary power of the Assyrians and say, but look how powerful they are. He took their eyes off of them and turned them square onto the power of Jehovah that had delivered his nation many times in the past. Had parted a Red Sea and delivered them across it and swallowed up all the powers of the most mighty military force in that day, which was Egypt. Over and over and over again throughout history, God had delivered his people and he turned to that God. And he said, that is fact. And he said, I will not heed the power of the Assyrians. I will not listen to its boast, but I will trust my God. Remembering the work of the truly great king. Who's the truly great king? Who is the great king? Who is the king of kings? It's not the king of the Assyrians. His name is King Jesus. The prayer of the dark night. Forsaking faith in the legendary power of the Assyrians for faith in the legendary power of Jehovah. He took his hundred coins out of his bag. And he'd been entrusting a few to the Assyrians and he got them all back. Stuck them all in the little, uh, what do you call that, little sack thing? There's a name for it. Pouch. Stuck them back in the pouch. Then turned towards God. Dumped them on the altar. And he says, my confidence lies in you. I don't care what they boast. You're God Almighty. You are the great king. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. All the rest of those gods are wood and stone, but you are real. Prove it. Prove it. Now, this is the prayer of your soul, by the way. This is the prayer of the dark night. The siege upon the 47th stronghold. You're at wit's end. What do you pray? That. That all the world would know that sin doesn't have power anymore in this earth. That you have done the work on the cross. Prove it now. That you are Lord and Lord alone. Then Isaiah sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Okay, now God has answered. Who, this is God speaking to the great king. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? against the Holy One of Israel. 
Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Truth. That's God's answer for you. I know how powerful the legend is of the Assyrians. I know what you've grown up around in the modern church. We're defeated, it just is always the case. You can never actually overcome, and I'm here to tell you. The message is, the enemy will not be able to touch this city. Get your grubby hands off it, O great king of Assyria. You are defeated. Resurrection morning. The death of the old, the birth of the new. So what we have is the night. The dark night of holding on, saying, God, I trust you. Jesus dies on a cross, Nisan 14. And whether it was Nisan 16 or Nisan 17 is hard to know because we're not, we weren't alive in the days when Jesus died. All we know is that it supposedly was three days and three nights in the tomb. However you figure that mathematically, we know it's true because all the apostles testified. Didn't you see? He fulfilled the prophecy of three days and three nights. Okay? So whatever day it was, around Nisan 17, the morning of it, at the time of the year when kings go forth to battle, which is this exact time, it's very likely that this was, might as well say it, Nisan 17. We have ourselves the death of the old and the resurrection of a new life. All that God did on that cross He destroyed the old man. He destroyed the old power. He destroyed and devastated the legend of the Assyrians. And then he buried it in the ground. And then guess who came forth? The risen one. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. In that battle... That wrestling match with God, his thigh was touched. And now, he has a limp. So do you. So does Hezekiah. So do all the sheep. They've recognized their weakness. We're not fit to go to battle with Esau. (laughs) I'm not fit to fight the Assyrians. But I do know someone who is. Watch what my God will do. For when my God goes forth to battle, he wins. And my God has spoken. And Assyria will not enter these gates. They will not pass. So this is, the, this is, again, the same time. This is Passover. This is the Passover weekend that Jacob wrestled with the man of God. That's what Jewish uh, history will always tell you. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord, this is back in the time of Hezekiah, that the angel of the Lord, which, by the way, throughout the Old Testament is oftentimes referred to as the theophonic angel, or Jesus in the Old Testament. That the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. No one messes 
with God. They blasphemed, they mocked, they ridiculed, and where do they stand now? Corpses. 185,000 of them. That is a lot. And they never entered the gates. One man stood and said, I will not submit. He rebelled against the power of Assyria and everyone around him bowed in that generation. But this man, and this man's willingness to allow God to fight his battle for him, led to one of the most amazing military victories in all of history. Out of, life, out of death comes life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know the playing field changes when Assyria goes down? Suddenly the great ancient power has been defeated. 185,000 of them. The great king skulks back to Nineveh, shamefaced. He literally lost, as many uh, Jewish historians would say, the greatest captains and officers and the greatest men of war in his army were all devastated. No one knows how. The Ninevites are just trembling, saying, what God do they serve? Because the great power of the great king, the great power of sin, has been defanged. Suddenly, King Hezekiah is the one they're trembling before. Who is that general? And King Hezekiah has a limp. And he's saying, actually, it's not me. Romans 6. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. First there is death, then life. What we see, ironically in this story, you know where we truly stand? We're not really the remnant of Hezekiah. We're the Assyrian army. We're the ones outside the gate against God. That adds a whole new twist to it. That God would invite us in and allow us to share in the victory of Judah. I mean, it's just rather extraordinary. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The appeal of Hezekiah. Hezekiah has seen the power of God. He has seen the marvelous work and wonders of God. So what does he do? This is from Flavius Josephus. Uh, this is, the, this is a, a statement from Jewish history. This isn't biblical history. This is Jewish history on the nature of Hezekiah. You'll see a lot in this. It's really fascinating. Now in the fourth year of the reign of Hosea, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, began to reign in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, a citizen of Jerusalem. His nature was good and righteous and religious. For when he came to the kingdom, he thought that nothing was prior or more necessary or more advantageous to himself and to his subjects than to worship God. He basically said the highest thing we could do in Judah is to worship God. Accordingly, he called the people together and the priests and the Levites and made a speech to them and said, You are not ignorant how 
by the sins of my father who transgressed that sacred honor which was due to God, you have had experience of many and great miseries while you were corrupted in your mind by him and were induced to worship those which he supposed to be God's. Could you imagine speaking that way about your father before an entire nation? My father was evil, and he led you astray. You know who that is? It's the old man. The old man has been exposed. He's evil. He led you astray. Let's turn back to God. I exhort you, therefore, who have learned by sad experience how dangerous a thing impiety is, to put that immediately out of your memory and to purify yourselves from your former pollutions and to open the temple to these priests and Levites who are here convened and to cleanse it with the accustomed sacrifices and to recover all to the ancient honor which our fathers paid to it. For by this means we may render God favorable and he will remit the anger he hath had to us. So then in Second Chronicles 30, we see a very similar scene. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Now you guys know what time of year we're in, right? To the Jews, we're in the month of Nisan. Friday would have been Nisan 14, which in history is actually the day of the Paschal Lamb offering or sacrificed. Now it just sort of happens that it's Friday. I know we call it Good Friday, but the Christians always celebrate resurrection morning on the first day of the week. So it doesn't always line up this way. But the Paschal Lamb would have been killed on the 14th of Nisan, which would have been our Friday. And then it would have been buried before twilight, which is, as the Hebrew custom would have been all throughout the Old Testament, they wanted it down before the high Sabbath of the Passover. Not the high Sabbath of a Saturday, as we would understand in our Gregorian uh, system, but the high, high Sabbath of a Passover. And then he would have been three days in the tomb, and then he would have risen again on the first day of the week. Hezekiah is saying, let's celebrate the Passover. Not just his dad, not just his dad's dad and dad and, dad and all back. No one celebrated the Passover anymore. It was a lost tradition. And Hezekiah asked that we would celebrate the Passover unlike they had ever celebrated it before. And he pulled out a whopper, a two-week-long Passover celebration to remember the great work of God. So, he sent runners all throughout Israel and Judah. So this is the two kingdoms, okay? He says, Then the runners went throughout all of Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Any of you who are still here, hey, turn back! And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation, as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Do you mind if I say the same thing to you? Do you recognize that when you live in rebellion to the living God, you're only setting yourself up for desolation? Turn! Come back to your God! Forsake your old way! Remember his work! And as Christians, what is that work? It's the cross. It's the cross. Don't you remember his victory? Don't live in defeat. You know what Israel said? So the runners passed from city to city throughout the, through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. And in Hebrew history, 
they actually defiled the runners. That's actually what it would say. They did horrible, criminal things unto those that were bearing this message. This is Israel. Come on, guys, what's wrong with you? Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. So in Israel, guess what? Some turned, and some came to Jerusalem to celebrate. The invitation is out there. Let's come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover, unlike it's ever been celebrated before. We're a generation that has lost the grandeur of the work of the cross. We've lost the power of it. Five practical steps to overcoming sin. First, take advantage of this window of opportunity, this dark night, the siege on the 47th stronghold. If you find that you're backed into a corner and you're weak right now, here's what I'm going to say to you. Take advantage of it. There's a reason why you're weak right now, and there's a reason why you have a dark night in your life. It's so that you would call upon the Lord. Number two, get in Christ. Return to the sanctuary of the Lord. Where did Hezekiah go? He went to the temple of the Lord. You know what it says in the New Testament? It says that we must be in Christ Jesus. There's a building next to us. It's called the Lake House. It's our administrative building. We eat meals there. We have offices there. If you're standing outside of that building, it's a rainstorm and a windstorm, guess what? Wind and rain is going to hit you. But what if someone gives you an invitation into the house and says, no, come on in. You see, being inside the house is very different than being near it. You can esteem the house and you can say, yeah, I'm sure if you were in the house, you'd be freed from the wind and the rain. But if you don't actually get in to the house, you have none of the benefits of the house. Wind is going to still hit you and rain is still going to douse you. You must enter in. And the same is true with Christ Jesus. He's known as clothing. Isaiah 61 is described as the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness. And without that robe around you, you have no salvation. None. It's his work on the cross. He's made clothing for it. It's like he sewed it up for you in and through his work. And he says, please, could you get into this clothing? Could you come into my dwelling? Could you come into my life? He is the house. And you find security in that house. And the great king of Assyria cannot access that house. Can sin get through Jesus? Can lust get through Jesus? Can fear get through Jesus? Can anxiety get through Jesus? Can pride get through Jesus? No! And where are you? In Christ. In Christ. He's a shield, a shelter, a fortress, a rock. And the enemy can no longer have you. Get in Christ. Three, transfer the coins of your faith. Look upon the cross. Back in the Old Testament, there was a, that everyone was being bit by a, by a serpent because of their disobedience to God and their rebellion against God. And so God took the serpent and had Moses craft a bronze serpent and stick it up on a pole. And anyone who looked upon that pole would be healed. In the New Testament, Jesus likens himself to that serpent on a cross. How can he do that? A serpent in a cursed position? How terrible. You see, he was becoming sin for us. And in that cross, it was more than just the perfect man of Jesus. What he did is he grabbed a hold of the neck of sin itself the power of the old man and drug it into that cross with him. And when the wrath of God fell, it didn't just fall on him. It fell on everything that he took with him. Sin was judged. The Assyrian army became a corpse that day. 
past tense. Could you imagine how strange it would be if Hezekiah stayed walled up in his city for fear of the Assyrians? Uh, King Hezekiah, they're dead. Hey, buddy, hey, wake up. They're dead. I know, but their legend is so great. You know what? If you stay in the city trembling with fear of the past tense power of the Assyrian army, it will still have power over you. Not because it can do anything to you, but because you still lend it your coins of faith. Transfer the coins of your faith. For them to be healed, you know what they had to do? They had to admit that they were snake bit. Could you imagine? I'm not going to admit that I'm snake bit. I'm fine. I'm fine. And so if they don't look upon that bronze serpent, guess what? They will not be healed. For anyone to go out of their way to find the bronze serpent and stand before it and look upon it, you know what they had to acknowledge? I'm snake bit. I need help. I need to be healed. And so do you. You must acknowledge that you need to be rescued. Come and look upon Jesus. Say, you are my only source of healing. You are my only source of salvation. And guess what? You're healed. Four, reckon the old man dead. It's dead. The old man. The power of sin against you. Your old life is no more. All that used to control you, that sensual side, that selfish nature, it no longer has power over you. It's past tense. Paul says the old man is crucified with Christ. Dead. Buried. Discarded. And now, who lives? A new man. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's like, I live, but it's not the old Paul you once knew. It's a new Paul. In the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's a new, new life. It's hard to explain. It's Christianity. Reckon the old man dead. Number five, reckon yourself alive in Christ. Reckon means to take. If I set a $20 bill down here on the stage, and I said, it's yours. It's yours. It belongs to you. And then later today, someone's asking you a question. They go, didn't Eric give you a $20 bill? It's like, yeah, yeah. Well, where is it? I don't know. It's probably still on the stage. Well, you have to take it. Your old man is dead, but you have to take it. You have newness of life in Christ Jesus. And you can say, I don't feel new. If you get in Jesus Christ, your old man is dead. And you have newness of life in Christ Jesus. This is the benefits of the house. If you're standing outside the house and your wind's blown and you're soaked, well, guess what? Someone could say, yeah, well, you could be dry and no more wind blown inside the house. And you could say, I don't feel it. I feel wind blown and wet. Well, that's because you're outside the house. The benefits of the house is that it has a roof. It has walls. It will protect you. You must enter in, and by faith, you literally are dead to the old man and alive in Christ Jesus. Just the benefits of the house. Enter in by faith and take it. It's resurrection morning, and our God lives. Isn't that an amazing thought? I was talking with Dub this morning about that fact. He was like, and Jesus had, uh, had blood coming out of his side, and, and he died. I go, well, yeah, he, that is true. But do you know what else? He rose from the dead. He, he rose from the dead. He's alive. You know what he was saying all morning long? He's like, Mama, Mama, did you know that uh, Jesus had blood coming out of his side and he died? And, and then, and, and, and then he, he rose from the dead uh, and, and now he lives. I, I didn't want to correct him and say, well, the fact that he rose from the dead means he lives. But to him, that's two separate things. He rose from the dead and he lives. So he's like, he rose from the dead. He's like, 
He's risen. He's risen. Our God lives. And 185,000 powers of darkness lay dead. Past tense. The victory's won. Don't hold yourself up in fear. You live following in the train of the triumphant king of kings. And he, King Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. What a statement. Every other king bows, but not Hezekiah. Every other nation pays tribute, but not Hezekiah. Everyone else may bow and pay homage to the power of sin, but not you. Everyone else may pay tribute to the great king, but not you, for you serve the real king of kings. That's Christianity. I don't know what's happened to it in our generation, but I, for one, refuse to sit on my thumbs while the church of Jesus Christ is being withered away and decomposing under the power of the Assyrian army. We do not tremble before any other power but God Almighty, who has done the work to save us. May it be said of you, and he or she rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Isn't that a great statement for your life? See, we've been sticking all sorts of things up on our refrigerator, but that one might need to go there. And Eric Ludi rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. It's not a bad uh, thing for a gravestone. You know, an epitaph. Not bad. It wouldn't make a lot of sense to anyone. They're like, the king of Assyria? Who in the world's that? <laughs> you understand what that means. That's literally standing up against the great power of the age and defying it, even though no one else in your generation has. You choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve in fear? The legendary power of the great king of Assyria. Are you going to allow sin to continue to reign in your mortal body that you would obey it in the lusts thereof? Or are you going to side with the Lord of hosts who has done the work and has given you everything you need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus? Everything is found in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him, it says. All of it. Just get into the house. It's ridiculous for a sheep to turn to the bears when he has a shepherd to protect him. You do not need to turn to anything else. You do not need to fight it in your own strength. You will fail. Accept the limp. The morning comes. And you know what Esau did? Esau, with 400 armed men, ready to destroy Jacob, made away and said, pass on through. The Assyrians can't stop you. You step outside and start going after what God calls you to, and you realize, whoa, they're all dead. Whoa, what happened last night? What happened on that cross? What did my king do? Boy, when the Lord of hosts goes to battle, he's rather thorough. Our God wins. Simply put, he's victorious. Let's pray. Oh, precious, victorious King of Kings, we worship you. You have done it. And may we cherish the memory of that cross and may we celebrate the Passover 
unlike it's ever been celebrated. And today, even in our baptisms, I pray, Lord Jesus, that there would be a roar in the soul of your saints, that we would declare the old man dead and newness of life in Christ Jesus. We have it in you. Lord Jesus, may we be King Hezekiah's in this generation. May we be that remnant that does not bow the knee to Baal, that does not tremble before the Assyrian army, that sees the flesh make its way and part. May we, Lord Jesus, behold the living God. May the glory of the God of Israel be made manifest in this generation. Use us, Lord Jesus. Use us. It's in the precious name of our great King. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.